0: Psalm 67 The nations called to praise God. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known upon all earth your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the people praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the people praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, has blessed us. May God continue to bless us. Let all the ends of the earth Revere him. Thanks be to God for his word. We're going to start with Romans chapter 11, the beginning of the chapter. Israel's rejection is not final. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. And now we're going to go to verse 28. All Israel will be saved. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their ancestors, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they have now been disobedient in order that, by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may be merciful to all." Thanks be to God for his word.
1: Thank you, Anne. Hearing Paul's great affirmation that God has not yet finished with Israel in the wake of Nickwith's story about where Israel is at at the moment politically in relationship to Palestine is a very interesting thing to hear. And we will be reflecting a little bit on that as part of a a broader picture of where God is in the midst of uh, ethnic struggle uh, globally uh, as we go through the sermon this morning. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this uh, as well, but in the last couple of years, the incredible scientific feat of decoding the human genome has passed from the world of esoteric science into the world of the mundane. These days, for less than the price of two reasonable West End theatre tickets, you can, and I quote, bring your ancestry to life through your DNA. You want to have your, your personal genetic code sequenced, cost you about 150 quid. The market leading company uh, called 23andMe will apparently then use their worldwide database of genetic sequencing to give you personalized information about your ancestry composition. Any DNA relatives you may have lurking undiscovered in your family tree, and they will even give you your Neanderthal percentage. And it occurs to me that whilst it may do, one, no harm to discover that you're a few percent Neanderthal, after all, so is everyone else, or that you're only 25 percent European alongside sub-Saharan African or East Asian ancestry, discovering that you have a direct match on their database for a sister living in Australia that you previously knew nothing about may be rather more problematic. Of course, there may be some health benefits in terms of inherited genetic diseases, but quite what one is even supposed to do with the information that you have a slightly increased chance of developing Alzheimer's disease compared to the population as a whole is a bit of a mystery to me at the moment, beyond the usual, you know, keep healthy, lose weight, don't eat the wrong stuff all the time, which hopefully we do anyway. And anyway, the health reporting isn't what's driving this new industry, in personalized DNA sequencing. People are, it seems to me, buying into this because they're curious to understand more about their identity. Who am I is one of the leading questions of our time. Am I a European or am I British or African or Asian or a Mongol or Neanderthal? Who should I identify with? Which tribe do I belong to? In a globalized world of instant communication and social networks that transcend all geographical barriers, it seems to me that we're living through a crisis of belonging. It's the same question that drives the huge interest in family tree research. Who am I? Or to quote the BBC, Who Do You Think You Are? The title, of course, of the ever-popular TV show in which celebrities discover, and I quote from the BBC here, secrets and surprises from their past. Except it's not from their past at all. Much of what's discovered and the stories that are told are from many generations before anyone alive now was even born. Logically, of course, it's nonsense. You don't have to go back very many generations before you have more ancestors than there were people living in the entire world. The time of the Norman conquest in the 11th century achieves this by a factor of three, which means, basically, that we're all massively interbred. There is no pure line in any of us. My my dear Nana used to say, with some considerable pride, that her ancestors came over, you know, with the Normans. Well, of course, if you're white British, so did all of yours, so did all of ours. In fact, did you know that if you're a white European, you are, statistically speaking, a direct descendant of Charlemagne, Carolingian king of the Franks and Holy Roman Emperor, It's just a numbers game. He had at least 18 children, and therefore, as a white European, I'm one of his descendants. It just must be true. That's the way population statistics works. So defining ourselves by our genetic or ancestral heritage is a logical nonsense. But it continues to make emotional sense. And the events in Charlottesville over the last couple of weeks have vividly and tragically demonstrated this. As I said, I think this is because we have, in our Western society, reached a crisis of belonging. We don't know who we are. Well, we're told that at a genetic level, we're probably evolved to live in villages of about two to three hundred people, which is about the number of people that you can comfortably get to know and sustain some kind of relationship with. More than this, and things quickly become overwhelming. Interestingly, the average number of friends that Facebook users have on the platform is 338, whilst the median number is 200. So this figure of two to three hundred is still out there in terms of active relationships. It's about the right size for a group that you can get to know. Churches often struggle to grow beyond 300 because at that point they start to feel impersonal and people get lost. It seems we perhaps most naturally relate to smaller communities. And so faced with the vastness of our world, with all its diversity and ethnicity and gender, and sexuality, and social standing, and political opinion, and religious conviction, we end up searching for meaning, for identity, for that elusive sense of belonging, seeking always the answer to the question of who are we? Are we white or black, British or English, or European, or French, or African, or Asian, or Neanderthal, or whatever? Which at one level is fine. There's nothing wrong with a bit of quiet genealogical research. I'm a bit partial to it myself. And there's nothing inherently dangerous about having your DNA sequenced. But if these things are symptoms of a deeper malaise, if they arise from our crisis of belonging, then that same sickness can also manifest itself in racism and sexism and white supremacy and neo-Nazism and homophobia and gay bashing and the worst kinds of nationalistic sabre-rattling such as, and I quote the president, the world has never seen before. But of course, for all of our technological advancements, we aren't the first generation to experience a crisis of belonging. We aren't the first generation in which people have struggled to know who they are. The Roman Empire dominated the known world in the first century, and it has many parallels with the globalized media and financial empires of our own time. The Romans were technologically dominant with a massive military machine and an all-encompassing trade and finance network all held together around an ideology of emperor worship. People who just a generation before had had no experience of life beyond their rural village suddenly found the Roman Empire arriving on their doorstep and informing them in no uncertain terms that they were now part of something bigger. The ethnic... Cultural and religious diversity of the Roman Empire was greater than any other empire at any point in human history before it, and it was something which would not be repeated until relatively modern times. And so, in the first century, people were facing their own crisis of belonging. To whom did they belong? To Rome, to Galatia, to Philippi, to Palestine, to Jerusalem? Who were they to regard as their tribe or their people? And this is the background we meet in our passage for this morning from Paul's letter to the Romans. And you can see, I hope, that it's a context which has strong similarities with the world we find ourselves in. My hope also is that as we explore Paul's approach to these issues of belonging and ethnicity and nationality and religion in his context we'll gain some insights into how we might address such issues in our world too. Those of you who have been with us over the last few weeks will know that we're going through a series looking at this central section of uh, Paul's letter to Romans. If you want to catch up on any of these, you can do so. They're online. Uh, You can either read or listen to them again via our Facebook page or our SoundCloud page. Well, we get to chapter 11 today, and Paul begins chapter 11 by rehearsing his conclusion from the previous chapter, which we looked at last week. And uh, the the question he was addressing in the last chapter was, does the inclusion of the Gentile nations into the people of God mean that God has broken faith with and rejected the ethnic people of Israel? Well, says Paul in verse 1 of chapter 11, by no means. No, God has not finished with Israel. And then to prove it, he uses himself as an example. He says he's a Jew. He is a genetic descendant of Abraham. And yet, he's also a part of God's Christian people. He's no less a Jew because he is also a Christian. And just as he argues that Gentiles do not need to become Jewish in order to receive righteousness through Christ... So he argues that he can also remain a Jew even as he puts his own faith in Christ. Christianity transcends the ethnic division of Jew or Gentile. And he says if it's true for him, then it's also true for others. Therefore, God has not finished with Israel. QED, that's Paul's logic. Then, in the bit of chapter 11 that the lectionary skips over in today's reading, Paul goes over the same ground again in some considerable complexity, using his famous metaphor of an olive tree, trying to show that Gentile branches have been grafted into the historic root and trunk of Israel, and that whilst some Jewish branches may have been broken off, they can still be grafted in again by God, the master gardener. There you go, that's my summary of the central part of Romans 11. Go and read it for yourself if you're interested. But then we come to the conclusion of this part of Paul's argument, which has been running really for the last three chapters. And he has been teasing out the relationship between Jew and Gentile. And here we find ourselves in the murky and distressing waters of racism and xenophobia. The incendiary language leaps out at us in verse 28, I don't know if you spotted it, where Paul speaks to his mostly Gentile audience about the Jews. And he says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Interestingly, the new revised standard version, our Pew Bible, which I normally like very much, tries to soften this a little bit and adds a couple of words. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. It's not there in the original Greek. Paul is more incendiary than that. As regards the gospel, the Jews are enemies for your sake. Paul is hitting the shock factor here. The Jews, who he has just spent three chapters arguing are part of God's covenant still, are now, he says, enemies with regards to the gospel of Christ. What on on earth is going on here? As we discovered last week, when we looked at Paul's language of justification by works, we have to recognize when we're reading this, that we do so in a very different context from that in which it was first written. There may be certain similarities, but we are reading this post-Holocaust. We know where anti-Semitism can take Western Europe, and we are careful to avoid it and we are alert to any hint of it. We might criticize the Jewish state for its current war of attrition against the Palestinians, and I think we are right to do so. But that is not the same thing as saying that the Jews, all Jews, are enemies of the gospel. And we have to maintain that distinction, otherwise we fall into anti-Semitism. We need to know that we are not writing off the entire people because we criticize the actions of a particular government. But Paul... Who does not know about the Holocaust and the horrors of 20th century European anti Semitism is not so nuanced. So, why does Paul say the Jews are enemies because of the gospel? Well, of course, Paul is himself writing this as a Jew. He's just made that very clear. This is not anti-Semitism coming from a powerful oppressor against a minority population. This is the comment by one Jew about the Jews. But there is certainly a background here of anti-Judaism within the congregation that Paul's writing to in Rome. And I think he is using this deliberately inflammatory language to call it out. The majority of the first century a uh, Christian congregation in Rome was made up of those who had converted from the pagan religions. They were Gentile converts to Christianity. Only a minority of people in that congregation were those who came from a Jewish background, who had decided to follow Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. So you've got a majority Gentile convert with a minority Jewish convert group. And just as Paul has argued very strongly that Gentile converts did not need to adopt the Jewish law when they became Christians, so now he has to argue that Jewish converts do not need to stop observing their Jewish religious practices just because they recognize Jesus as their Jewish Messiah. And what it seems to have been going on is that, in essence, the Gentiles, christians in this roman congregation had been picking on the minority jewish christians probably in retaliation for the efforts by some of those same jews to tell the gentiles they needed to start keeping the jewish law in order to be proper followers of jesus and then you've got the gentiles arguing back and going ah you jews you know you're always banging on about your law and denigrating the jews so you've got real ethnic and religious tension within this congregation with both sides needling the other So Paul echoes their language back to them. Yes, he says, the Jews are the enemies of the gospel, but that does not mean that they're estranged from God or cut off from the love of God. Their error in rejecting Christ or misunderstanding what it means to follow him does not mean that God has broken faith with them. If they are enemies, Paul goes on, They are no more enemies of the gospel than the Gentiles themselves were before they had been converted. So the response of the Gentiles should be to show the mercy of God to the Jews, not to mock, belittle, or otherwise oppress them. As Paul says, God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may be merciful to all. No one is any better or any worse in God's eyes than anyone else. Whatever your nationality, religious conviction, ethnic heritage or political persuasion, we all equally need the mercy of God. God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. In many ways, this verse 32 of chapter 11 is a one-sentence summary statement of the entire theological argument that Paul has been developing at some length and complexity through the letter of Romans. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may be merciful to all. They say sometimes that the best PhD thesis can be summed up in one sentence. Well, if Romans is the closest Paul gets to a PhD thesis, this is his one-sentence summary. It may be short, but it makes some bold theological moves, and it's worth getting our heads around. Firstly, the reason all humans, regardless of ethnicity or heritage, are imprisoned in disobedience is because God has willed it to be so. Paul's observation is that there's something about the nature of the world at every level from the individual to society, from human affairs to the natural world in which we live, which means that when people pursue paths other than seeking after the God of love, they find themselves more and more hemmed in and confined by the consequences of their decisions. This is where sin takes people. This is where selfishness takes people. It's not that God punishes people for their unfaithfulness. It's rather that people punish themselves when their choices in life take them away from God. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. Secondly, the great irony of humanity's imprisonment in disobedience is that it is at the very moment where we recognize our disobedience that we open ourselves up to the mercy of God. You know how sometimes people say that you've got to hit rock bottom before you can start to come back up again. I think many of those who come to the anonymous groups that meet here would know that very, in a very real way. Well, that's a good summary of what Paul's saying here when we realize how imprisoned we have become by our attempts to be strong and wise in our own strength, then we open the door to God's love in releasing us from our striving and our effort. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. Thirdly, the ethnic, cultural, social, and ideological divisions within humanity are rendered meaningless by the love of God. Israel's covenant privileges have been extended to all, and all nations are blessed through fulfillment of the Jewish covenant in Christ. Therefore, there is no basis for any one nation, tribe, or people to regard themselves as more chosen than any other. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. Fourthly, God's mercy to all does not negate God's absolute anger against sin. Where sin is understood as that which shuts the human heart off from openness to the love and mercy that God longs to pour in. Stating the universal love of God for all that He has made does not stop God hating all that distorts that love in action in people's lives. Then, sorry, where sin abounds, where people conspire to put themselves over others, where people believe the lie that one life is worth more than another, then God's wrath hardens hearts in order that the haughty will be brought down to the point where all, including the worst of sinners, can be raised up. I sometimes get criticism from people who uh, point out that I'm a universalist, which I am, uh, and then say, so that just means why bother? Why bother with discipleship? God, God's just this fluffy, loving God who, who doesn't judge anybody. I think that's missing the point. The universal love of God correlates to the universal wrath of God against all that distorts the love of God in humankind. God's judgment is absolute, as is his love. And forgiveness and mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. And fifthly, there's no mention in any of this about human faith. I don't know if you've noticed that. It is God's faithfulness which does all of this. God is merciful to all. God is faithful to Gentiles in their unbelief. And to Jews, in the hardening of their hearts, God is faithful to creation as its creator. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may be merciful to all. So where does this leave us? Where does it leave a world living with the consequences of a crisis of belonging? Where does it leave us in the days after the Barcelona terrorist attack? What does Paul say to us as we seek to deal in our own towns and cities with the ethnic tensions that blight so many of our relationships, from Barcelona to Finland to Palestine to the streets of homeland America? Well, I think he would say very clearly, and particularly in the light of Charlottesville, that black lives matter. There is... Absolutely no justification in Christ for the view that white lives matter more than any other. And the alignment of certain segments of the Christian church with the views of white supremacy is, I believe, an evil that must be opposed. And before we say that Charlottesville is not London and that it doesn't happen here, believe me, it does. I grew up watching the black and white minstrel show which wasn't cancelled until I was six years old, with its perpetuation of grotesque caricatures of racial stereotypes. The race riots of the early 1980s were when I first became of the power of ethnic difference to incite violence, and I have now learned that those race riots took place in the very cities where white people had become enriched through the slave and sugar trade of the 18th and 19th centuries. We live in a deeply divided country and a deeply divided city with people of all different nationalities trying to live and work side by side. And yet, if you are a graduate, a black graduate of a British university, you will earn on average 23.1% less than your fellow white graduates. Since 2010, there has been a 49% increase in the number of ethnic minority 16 to 24-year-olds who are long-term unemployed, whilst in the same period there has been a fall of 2% in long-term unemployment amongst white people in the same age category. Black workers are more than twice as likely to be in insecure forms of employment, such as temporary contracts or working for an agency. Black people are far more often the victims of crime and you are more than twice as likely to be murdered if you are black in England and Wales. When accused of crimes, black people are three times more likely to be prosecuted and sentenced than white people. Saying black lives matter is not the same as saying white lives don't matter, any more than saying children's lives matter would be the same as saying adult lives don't matter. But we have to recognize that we live in this country with a heritage of ethnic oppression and Paul's insight in Romans is that all of us are diminished by this. There is nowhere here for white privilege to hide. And simply saying that I'm not a racist does not get any of us off the hook. I can remember in 2007 which was the year of the bicentenary of the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade. I was part of the discussions at Baptist Union Council as to whether the Baptist Union were were going to issue uh, an unambiguous apology for uh, the complicity in and ongoing effects of the transatlantic slave trade. I heard various uh, views expressed around the room. Uh, I've never owned slaves, what do I have to apologize for? I didn't ask to be born white. Asking me to apologize for who I am is just racism in reverse. And so What struck me in that discussion and listening to voices who were speaking about the kinds of statistics that I just read a few moments ago was this kind of profound moment where I realized that all of us are diminished By white privilege, including the privileged whites. I am massively diminished when my inherited privilege diminishes somebody else. There is something deeply wrong at that point. It has been said that when you are used to privilege, equality can feel like discrimination, and many white people will cry foul when their supremacy is challenged. And yet, just as Paul argues that God's mercy is big enough for both Jew and Gentile, so we need to hear him telling us that equality is only equality when it works equally for both white and non-white. Anything less than true equality imprisons black and white alike into the prison created by disobedience. And we need to live something different. We need to live something different here at Bloomsbury, here in London. And we're going to pray for our world in a few minutes. But as we prepare to do that, I would like to invite every one of us to examine our own lives and our own hearts as we uncover our own preconceptions and prejudices. And I wonder what it means for us to hear in our world that God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may be merciful to all.
2: Let us come before God in prayer. Create a God in whose love we live and move. We pray for a world crying out to feel loved, wanted, cherished, unique. Heavenly creator, source of all love, we pray for one another because we are all your people. We lift to you now those who are lonely, bereft, cold and without shelter. Those who see no light at the end of their tunnel. We pray for those that we will meet this week and the many ministries of this church as we move out to the margins. Lord, we confess our disobedience when we see them as other. But God has not rejected his people. We pray for a world torn apart by conflict and war, a world that lives uneasily in a climate of fear with no clear vision of the future days. Heavenly Redeemer, source of all hope, we pray for one another because we are all your people. We lift up those who are trapped in cycles of violence. For victims and oppressors, for those trapped by fear, anger, hatred, and idolatry. Lord, we pray for the victims and the families in Barcelona, in Finland. We pray for those countries that fall out of our news, like Venezuela, and we just pray for the ongoing violence. And bring, you will bring your peace to Iraq and to Syria. And for those countries around the world that see no end to their violence, we pray for world leaders. For those with power, I pray your guidance, your intervention, even. We confess our disobedience in this, our complicity in violence, and remember that God has not rejected his people. We pray for a world that thinks less of others than of self. A world where division between nations, race, religion, neighbor, and family leads to distrust. Heavenly Sustainer, source of all peace. We lift up those in Charlottesville that look at others and see them as less. We pray for those divides in Israel and Palestine, with the suspicion and the distrust. And we lift up our own city, the injustice, that lays under the surface, that goes unspoken. We confess our disobedience. We lay down our idols, our prejudices, our racism, our sexism, our fear, and our distrust. Because God has not rejected his people. And God, we pray for a world that is short on happiness, too busy to enjoy the world that you have created, too preoccupied to living, with living to appreciate life. God, source of all joy, we lift up ourselves. We don't know who we are. So let us find our identity with you. Help us to not find our identity in business, in stress, in our success, in our distractions, in the things that we do, and help us to find it in you. We ask you to help us once again to bring our focus back to your will, to your love. Be our light, our guidance. Show us how to be a light for others. We confess our disobedience and remember that God has not rejected his people. And he is merciful to all. Amen.